Welcome to the Cannabis Data Science Meetup. Happy to have you here. As always, just trying to move the ball forward. I've got some new code to share with you today, and then also happy to, to brainstorm um, and just, you know, talk about some of the things that you're interested in here in the cannabis space. So, got some cool things to share with you, but before I do that, just, you know, let everybody have a chance to speak. I know that, John, you may have had some ideas on, on your mind, so so maybe I'll, uh, I'll let you go first. So, um, I was a little distracted at the beginning, so we'd love to hear you recap. So, what sort of uh, this topic that you're interested in? Oh, um, well, let somebody else go first. Let me find the article. Oh, okay. Well, while you find the article, Rula, or please correct me if I mispronounced your name, but welcome to the group. Happy to have you here. We'd love to hear about what you're interested in in the cannabis space. The field's so wide, and we'd love to laser focus in on some of your interests. So, you know, please feel free to share. Sure, yeah, and I, my name is Rula, so you pronounce it correctly. Um, yeah, so I, I just graduated from health informatics and analytics, and I'm interested in the data science field. And that was the main motive for me to join today. Um, I've never worked on a cannabis, like in the cannabis field, but I'm open to learn more about it. Simply phenomenal. I'll show you some interesting things that are going on in the cannabis space, kind of broaden all of our horizons. And as always, I'll show you where avid data scientists like yourself can fill in some of the gaps and find your piece in the puzzle. Awesome having you here. I'm super interested in the cannabis plant itself and its chemistry. So we'd love to get to some of the chemical side of cannabis. But at the moment, we're still in this, in some cases, a literal gray area of cannabis where a large number of states have just openly permitted cannabis, whereas some states have done so in a more restricted manner for more medicinal reasons. And then there are still other states that just have, you know, outright bans on, on cannabis. And this has led to a bunch of interesting dynamics because the United States is a federation of states. So there are interstates connecting all the states it's common to do business in different states you know that's just the name of the game but things get murky when you start talking about the cannabis industry which is kind of just permitted on a state-by-state -state basis so john brought up the point last week you know what what's even the regulations on say money transferring from state to state you know if you have a business that operates in two states are you even allowed to use money revenue from one state to to fund operations in another state? Um, is that allowed? The taxes is a whole nother landscape because you still have to pay your taxes even on illegal operations, but you don't get to deduct anything from those taxes. So in the retailers, you know, they can't deduct their cost of goods sold, which is a typical expense for retailers. So 
if you're doing everything by the book and you know paying all of your taxes and not taking any deductions it's hard to imagine you know you could make a profit or even break even but you see companies hanging in there for for a long while um but but yeah so the tax burden's difficult plus as we we've, we've observed you know cannabis is still you know freely flowing across the states in an illegal fashion and you know how are you supposed to you know compete uh in the legal market when people are kind of under cutting you without following the rules so that's that's the landscape john or brian or anyone do you have anything to add to this before i kind of expand on this picture no i put the uh the art bloomberg article from may 8th illegal cannabis is making california water problems worse so just the just little odds and that that's not the article i was looking at but that's that's close to what i was what we're talking about okay well i'll i'll review these more um and so i'll you know let you let you run through these um but uh you know these are this is a pretty common story that we're hearing right now in that especially in say california there's pretty strict technical regulations so if you're actually going to follow the rules it's going to be difficult right they've got strict pesticide testing so you have to make sure your environment's you know completely pesticide free well an illegal grower they're not going to even test for pesticides so they may just just use um pesticides wantonly um and then you know um they don't have to do testing so i think a the California quality control testing may cost anywhere from five hundred to a thousand dollars per sample, and we saw Raw Garden had forty six hundred of those. Um, so, sorry, you know, pardon my. Uh, <laughs> see, this is this is the problem with calculators here, right? Um, so let's let's just say they they get a deal and they're running tests at 500 bucks a pop what is this like maybe 20,000 or so dollar or is that 20,000 or 200,000 uh sorry once again I uh, pardon my my math on the fly so so that's just testing costs you know they may be cutting the corner with pesticides I think water use has been a problem I mean everybody knows about uh water in california it's just that to, to people don't realize it but technically you know southern california is is a desert um and then you know people have these lush lawns and and there, it's an agricultural state so california just uses a lot of water plus they rely i believe mostly on tundra melt um and so you know the east is 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 interesting right the east has too much water and then the west does not have enough water and so once again you know illegal growers may illegally access water that's been a problem 
Um, so, you know, a, a wide number of issues, I suppose. Um, okay, so what's this? Oh, that's two million. That wow. Um, that sound right? Yes. So it's not impossible that Raw Garden has spent north of two million dollars on quality control testing in you know the past handful of years. Um, so. I don't know about you, but in my book, you know, two million is is non negligible. Um, so maybe for a company of that size, it may be a drop in the bucket, but um, that's a considerable cost. Okay, so so that's what's going on in the United States. But I realized we're often kind of we've got all of our biases and. Uh, Brian, you actually brought up the fact that you had old lab results or lab results from a few years prior. And one thing I realized is, I guess this may be a recency bias, but we're, we may be biased to data that occurred more recently. And we may discount, say, lab results that happened, you know, a couple years ago. But that doesn't actually necessarily negate their value. Just because a sample was tested two years ago, that's still a valid data point. You know, we may have to take into consideration that time has moved on since then. You know, people have maybe continued to grow their plants. But we may be overly discounting the value of old lab results just because of bias. And then I realized we may be actually missing a bit of the cannabis space because of proximity bias, right? So I'm here in Washington. So my proximity bias has led me to explore a lot of Washington state data and then eventually United States data. However, I realized from looking at this uh, person, uh, James Y, or James E. Awesome Maps, that we're actually missing a whole part of the puzzle. So, you know, we've been laser focused here on the United States and, you know, me specifically in Washington, that we've kind of neglected the rest of the world. And I was actually speaking with someone from south korea they were there there was a contingency um of south koreans at one of these cannabis conferences i forget maybe it was the one in oklahoma city um i forget which one but they're they were working on a push to allow medical cannabis in south korea and they were saying they're kind of facing a tough uphill battle because people have really harsh um um perceptions of cannabis in south korea and uh, you know got in a conversation with them and i said well unfortunately i you know the the united states may be 
partially to blame with, uh, for that. And, it, you know, we kind of have maybe not uh, borne the, the firsthand effects of this, but, you know, the United States was pretty strong in making sure that, you know, other countries around the world also curtailed their cannabis production. I don't know that much about the specifics and, you know, this is something I may want to, to read up more on, but I want to say that there may have been some cannabis eradication efforts in India that, once again, don't quote me on this, but I, um, I'll need to double check my sources, but I feel like, not feel, I've got a vague recollection that there may have been some marijuana or cannabis eradication efforts in India that may have partially stemmed from, you know, essentially the, the United States DEA. Um, you know, to what extent this has played an effect? Thought, comment, question? No, just a call. Sorry about that. Oh, yeah. So, so yeah, please chime in if you have a thought. So once again, I may need to, to research a bit more about this, but, you know, it just, it would just be uh, kind of hypocritical, right? Because maybe like over the past couple decades, we were maybe influencing other countries to, to stamp out cannabis cultivation. And, you know, they may have enacted various laws of their own, in some cases quite strict. Um, and now you see things are kind of changing in the United States, not in entirety, right? Um, so there's still a good portion of the country where it's not permitted, but there's, you know, a good portion where it is permitted. And then there's, you know, a lot of talk about, oh, you know, will, will the federal government ever, you know, federally Essentially, I think what needs to have what they would have to do is just would they either remove or change its cannabis from the controlled substance lists. Um, so that's basically what everybody's waiting on. And federal regulations are interesting because there's all these different bureaus at in the federal government. They all sort of have their different interpretations of federal law and they don't agree with each other, right? So for example, the IRS thinks that it's 100% going to pursue tax revenues from cannabis companies. The Department of Agriculture, you know, will not issue patents for cannabis plants, even though, you know, there's other people who think that maybe like hemp should be grown um, or should be permitted as long as it's less than 0.3% THC. Um, so basically no one, no one's really in, in agreement. Um, and they're all just kind of, you know, you know, punting on it and just saying, you know, oh, you know, it's not, um, it's not our responsibility in, until Congress changes its status on the controlled substance list. So, so that's, I think, what it all kind of comes back to. Um, 
but it's it's just a it's just a, to me it's I I wouldn't say it's laughable because it's not a funny situation, but basically you know all the different agencies just sort of interpret the policy you know in the way that in my opinion suits their agency the best right so the irs right they're trying to bring in as much tax revenue as possible so of course they're going to want tax revenue from cannabis so that's that's enough of me spieling so long story short is you know maybe we could start looking at some some other countries here and so I haven't quite got the material together yet for Thailand, but that one's going to be a super interesting one. Um, let's see what other countries here that I, I know. And then there's there's Uruguay. Oh, look, they're, they're labeled for us um, because I didn't know what this one was. So that's Georgia. Um, so apparently Georgia may allow cannabis. However, keep in mind that these maps can be misleading. So for example, Mexico technically has, I was, I was only briefly reading about this. I maybe only spent 15 minutes reading. So I'm going to butcher the, the actual interpretation of this. So once again, please read into it more yourself. But from my understanding, Mexico may technically have legal cannabis, but I don't think they've issued any licenses. Um, and then I think there was a bunch, there was maybe some kerfuffles over it. Like maybe there was um, some medical licenses being issued, but I think there may have been some complaints about, you know, who they were issued to. So anywho, so it, it doesn't seem like it's completely sorted out there. So, but technically they're, you know, blue on the map. And then Canada is actually, in a way, Canada's almost at the forefront because they actually have a, a a national cannabis market i would just love to to visit and actually see what it's like firsthand because who knows really until you see it see it see it or or you are there you know is there a stigma in canada against cannabis is it easy to find a dispensary you know if you're in say toronto or or maybe you're out you know camping somewhere is it possible to you know find a dispensary nearby you know do you have to jump through any hoops to go access it what type of products are even being sold is it good quality cannabis what strains can you find i don't know the first thing um so so if any of you want to, to do some, some exploration, there is some data published by Health Canada. And so as always, we're gonna start tracking down all the licenses. That's the, the first step, just find out who's growing it and where, and then we can maybe you know go from there to try to figure out the scale of everything that's happening. Um, well, so I've teased this long enough. A country that's of interest uh, to me because I I vaguely know a software developer there. Why don't we zoom in today on on South Africa? How can you even find South Africa licenses? Well, I'll just start basically letting you in on my coding. Um, 
so basically, you know, I don't do anything fancy. You know, I just say, you know, South Africa cannabis licenses. And, you know, you may have to dig around a bit. Um, you know, you'll find a lot of news articles. Um, you may actually have to, to go to Google. Um, but I was able to find this government website from South Africa. So this is the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority. You know, th that's something that's always interests me is who is actually regulating the, say, cannabis in various jurisdictions. And, you know, this is, this is pretty common for, you know, cannabis to be regulated by the same body that's regulating alcohol. Let's see what else they're regulating. So maybe imports and exports, various things. One thing we'll want to check out is the testing laboratories. So there's actually a good amount of laboratories in South Africa. Just do a quick uh, comparison check here. Oh, wow. So there's, there's more than 61 million people in South Africa. So that's actually uh, maybe twice the size of Texas, I think. Yes. So, so South Africa has almost twice as many people as Texas. So that's actually quite a bit larger than I was, I was thinking. So a good metric to sort of ground these in is per capita or specifically per 100,000 people. So that way we can kind of get a bit better of a comparison. So how many laboratories per 100,000 people does South Africa have versus say California or Florida? I, you know, as I said, I may be a little interested in the testing laboratories and maybe you are as well. And um, so I think we should keep track of those. But today we're talking cannabis. So we actually have a list here of all the cannabis licenses in South Africa. So I thought, you know, wouldn't it be diligent of us to go ahead and record these, right? We've been recording cannabis licenses from all the various states. Well, why not go ahead and add South Africa to the list and just keep track of the pertinent data points? Because who knows if, you know, one of these companies is just going to vanish from this list one day. Um, not, not picking on anybody, but, uh, you know, you know, maybe Calyx grow, maybe they're just, they vanish from the list. Um, you know, we would want to, you know, have archived that just to know that, okay, you know, they were around in 2022 and 2023. Um, okay. So, so that's phenomenal. So long story short, let me just actually just, I guess if you're interested, I can just show you how you could actually go about getting this data and then I'll share with you um, just uh, kind of tie this back into to the conversation at the end. Um, but before I 
start collecting this is does anybody have any thoughts comments questions about international cannabis um or cannabis in other countries is this something that interests you or what what are your yeah, thoughts just looking at the thc on the south african site thc and uh, cbd um information here's the page for it it's actually on that site it's on the news um how they're looking at it so yes. their their cbd sounds good say it's a non-psychoactive and i think governments like or, or i think people are, let's put it this way are agreeing that the non-psychoactive is the medicinal and that's essentially what the, they're trying to extract from it i guess and make it legal um exactly. you know so the plant has just like hemp has um you know has well did have rope issues clothing and stuff like that I mean, it was used for in fact there's a one of the one of the pieces of currency the united states has a hemp growers cutting in a field of hemp i can't remember exactly what that what what bill it is but it's on the back of one of the bills and you spend a big crop up until until rayon came in or the uh the plastics and i still yeah. think a lot of a lot of these natural plastics that um people are pushing um essentially going to come out of this, this kind of hemp world you raised just an interesting point in that you know cannabis I, can be used for so many purposes right so hemp it's used for for rope and then i was reading a an interesting article and they were saying some you know way back in the day people used to like say things like oh you know i didn't uh, use any drugs or alcohol but i may have gone behind the barn and smoked a little rope you know now and again and i think that was somebody who lived in like the early 1900s it's just kind of funny because that was i think basically maybe the early history of cannabis right it's just you know I don't know if I ended up sharing this, but maybe I will in the future weeks since, John, it seems this is a, of interest to you. But, you know, in Kentucky, apparently in like the early 1900s, you used to just have, you know, rolling hills of hemp. And what they would say is, you know, in the autumn, you know, in the fall, basically it starts to, uh, you know, mature. Um, and then want to say maybe they either harvested or maybe the hemp that they didn't get around to harvesting, they, maybe they would just let it go bad or let it go to seeds out in the field. So maybe if you were, you know, trying to replant for the next year, you maybe just let your hemp go. It turns into seeds. Um, and they were saying, oh, you know, the birds will eat the seeds and this and that. But at that same time, that's, you know, when the THC levels start increasing in hemp. And um, so a great database um, is the CBD, actually, what is it? It's the, the Midwestern Hemp Database. And once again, we have a, a recency bias. And I don't know if this database has been has been updated in a hot minute here i think we've got some cool charts down here um da, 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 da. yeah here we go so here we go so here's the the thc levels in hemp this is a hotly debated topic um 
So for example, I spoke with a PhD student in Maryland and what they were finding was that it's almost a, the THC almost follows a distribution here where as the weeks of flower go on, so the THC levels rise, but they were finding was that they, the THC levels actually then start to fall maybe in further weeks. So what would be interesting is if they kind of followed this study out and looked at the hemp in week 9, 10, and 11 and see if maybe the THC level starts to come back down. But basically what I'm getting to is the fact that cannabis produces THC is nothing new. People used to grow it for hemp. The ones they left out in the field eh, would maybe have a non-negligible amount of THC. And, you know, some people may have kind of used those buds recreationally, right? Like I said, they smoke some rope behind the barn. So, you know, they may have gotten some of these, <laughs> these flower buds that, you know, had just small amounts of THC and they, you know, puffed on them. I don't think it was anything new, um, but I don't think it was, you know, super taboo. Um, in the early 1900s, right? Like, you know, at least you're not like a a drunk, you know? So it's like, you know, they're, they're sort of, you know, worse. I think people at that time thought there were worse substances you could be on, right? You could be, um, maybe opium may have been big at the time. So they were like, oh, well, you know, he's not like an opium addict or he's not a drunk. You know, it's not the end of the world, you know, if he smoked a little rope behind the barn. Just to kind of start tying this all in. Well, as we were mentioning at the beginning, the status of cannabis in all these countries is really murky and changing. So, for example, there is this article or this press release that this cannabis regulatory body put out. And they basically said that, oh, you know, on some radio station, there was a, a licensee that said that it was it was growing cannabis for commercial purposes. Maybe they misspoke or whatnot, and maybe they meant it was they were growing for medicinal reasons or what have you. All I know is there's a list of cannabis cultivation licenses. I don't actually know if they're for medical purposes or not, but based on this press release, also don't know when this press release was issued, but based on this press release, it looks like maybe they only have medical cultivators. This is something that, you know, we should maybe keep our eye on. Even this, this agency's, you know, saying like, oh, you know, maybe there's, uh, you know, they're saying like, you know, what's going to happen with the, the possible future of cannabis? I'd love that you brought that up, John, because it does seem that there's still a pretty strong stigma against cannabis around the world. And, you know, even say, you know, places like South Africa, where they're beginning to license people, they're saying that, you know, this is still, you know, they're, they're, they're approaching this with a lot of scrutiny. And as I said, I almost feel a little bad about that because, you know, they're probably coming at this from the point of view where it's like, 
Um, you know, the DE, the, the United States DEA has been hounding us for decades. So it's like, you know, maybe they're a little cautious about just, you know, permitting cannabis. And they probably don't want these South African cannabis licenses illegally shipping cannabis all around the world because that that would probably be a bad look. Take so, a look at the, uh, the article I put out there on New York. They say criminalizing criminal or criminalizing illegal marijuana so it doesn't compete with the legal marijuana. <laughs> yeah, in fact, <laughs> that's pretty funny. <laughs> I, I, I should have had this material um uh, prepared for you um unfortunately i don't think i saved the links um and i don't remember the uh uh cannabis i to me basically yeah here it is recreational is an experiment like alcohol Right there's a point, like I said, that the concert, the 40th anniversary of um, uh, Woodstock, I was at, basically, you know, trying to dig up some business and watching people, especially one guy go through uh, every 15 minutes rolling a joint and smoking it, and realizing that this is either he's either really addicted to stuff like this, or this is like really ragweed that he can't get hot. So essentially, if you've got really good marijuana. Then essentially, to me, you're not sitting there for like an hour and they're rolling a joint every 15 minutes, you know. So, makes me wonder what the what the grade is, even though the smell was the smell smells similar, like I said, in Texas, right? So it smells the same, but is it really that potent? Because something to me, something that's really good, like the in the days of old when people had before all the legal legal stuff going on. You know, people would actually sell their wares, and you had the Colombian variation, and you had tie stick, and you had things that were coming out of Mexico, and you know, but you always had these one-hit wonders, and a one-hit wonder meant, boom, you're done, you know, and you really didn't waste it. Okay, so this is my understanding, John. This is a pretty good good depiction here where we basically looked at someone who was studying cannabis 35 years ago. And they, back then, they were saying the average THC of, say, a high THC strain was around 8%. And now we were saying that, oh, you know, maybe the average in Washington state is between 16 and 20%. And maybe in other states, it's higher, but depends on how you measure it. My interpretation is there's it doesn't really actually seem like there's like a genetic like cut off here, right? So it's just this 0.3% THC, that was just the legal system. And, you know, we know how the legal system works. They just, you know, they write the law and that's what it is. Right. From my understanding, these molecules are produced from a synthase, which is basically a, a controlled way that a plant makes chemicals. Depending on the genetics of the plant, they may like either express more or less of this synthase. So maybe this, you know, the production, the production of THC is either more or less in some plants, depending on genetics. And then that's heritable. So what we found is you can actually then do, what's the term? Selective breeding. 
And so you could then select for varieties that either have produced less and less THC, for whatever reason, the THC synthase isn't very active in these plants, or you can select genetics that have a high THC synthase. Um, and so those are the, the high THC varieties. Awesome. Well, to me, basically, now we're, we're measuring everything, but say 35 years ago, when you had to come in for these sources illegally, you know, how much testing really went on, you know, other than, other than rolling a joint or basically smoking, smoking a man of marijuana, go like, yeah, it's good stuff, and then ship it. <laughs> That's a phenomenal question. Um, and that was actually the question on my mind was where did they get these lab results, right? Because we were looking at, um, I don't have the book with me. It's uh, uh, actually, yeah, I didn't. Uh, we were looking at Sensimilia tips, uh, which is by Tom Alexander. Um, and I want to say this was around 30, 35 years ago. So this was copyright 1988. And they have some lab results they don't you know say where they got them and honestly my sneaking suspicion is they sent them off to their friend at you know some university right from my experience university professors are really kind of loose with the rules not all of them but you know that's kind of the uh, stereotypical professor right like in fact you know one of the earliest canna cannabis researchers um i don't remember his name um i think it's 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 machulam or something like that Raphael machulam so this was uh, one of the people who you know discovered you know the thc molecules and there is or he maybe not discovered them but he you know did work uh, isolating them from my understanding. But, you know, there was this funny story where maybe he would, I forget if he was arrested or maybe he was put in handcuffs or something, but he was like on a, a bus, um, maybe outside Tel Aviv with a, with a large amount of hash. And he was saying that, oh, you know, he just had it for, for research purposes, right? So he just and he may have gotten it from like the police station or something. So maybe he had like, you know, was talking to the police and he was like, oh yeah, you know, I need some, some hash to do some research. You know, mind if I come get some from you? And then, you know, he's on the bus with big block of stinky hash and they, you know, arrest them or something like that. And then I'm sure he'd let him go. Um, but that's another thing too. You're doing the marijuana discussion at TAC, but in the creation of hashish hashish has been created a while for a long period of time in a way to keep to squeeze out the oils of the plant and then condense them so therefore what does that used to be blonde red black black lace with opium i mean there's all these things you kind of understand that were out on the market at one point you know yes so i'll, I'll try to uh, tie this all uh together so okay so you've got kind of wild professors researching cannabis i've got a feeling that in the early days maybe they just found some wild wacky professor like that at one of these universities who knows which one like uh, probably my guess is one of the ones in california you know like uc berkeley or davis or 
uh, the University of Southern California. Who knows? Probably there's a chemist there who has access at that time to some sort of chromatography. And um, so that's how they measure cannabis, even to this day. But it just would have been rudimentary in those days. So I bet they could maybe do some rudimentary measure. And so they maybe could get a ballpark of, oh, yeah, this has about 8% THC. Once again, if we measured that exact same cannabis today, it would probably be measured differently. Um, so back then, long story short, they probably weren't differentiating between THC and THCA, and today they would. So, so various things like that. But long story short, you can kind of measure the THC, but there's more to cannabis than that, right? There's We were seeing, oh, you know, there's all these different strains and varieties. And then that kind of gets into the, the terpenes. So, you know, there's more to the plant than just the THC. And so this is, I think, where you're kind of getting into the, the varieties and the smell where, you know, the say the, the Columbia gold or the Thai sticks, um, those were just very distinctive strains. So that, you know, the Thai sticks from Thailand. Um, and then the Columbia gold from Columbia, right? So these are just, they've got entirely different chemical profiles, but they still have THC. And from my understanding, you know, the, the Californians are the ones who really push this forward and who really develop some of the, you know, real high THC strains. And now those high THC strains, from my understanding, are being, you know, taken to other countries and then bred in with their local stock. And so once again, I'll point you to this article. Um, and this may not be the specific one. That kind of makes sense. I mean, um, if you read up on the French wine industry, French imported uh, American plants and they brought a nematode with them. And the nematode really just wiped out the French plants. They couldn't stop it in the time they brought it across. So what they figured, and they do this, all the French plants were grafted onto the American rootstock. So they couldn't stop the expansion of the nematodes in the soil. So they basically just grafted their plants on top, and they went on from there instead of trying to stop it. So it's very interesting what you can do with plants and get away with it. Exactly. And so from, from my quick reading, you know, of course, like the California strains and high THC, they're going to other countries. In Thailand, I don't think they were super thrilled about that because, it, well, it's a give and a take, right? So I think they're, they kind of want to preserve some of, you know, their traditional plant genetics, you know, without it just, just all becoming just, you know, just, Cal, you know, just California Kush, essentially just some OG. There's a list of names on the 70s strains that were out there. And you can't figure, they came in from Vietnam, a lot of this stuff in the 70s. That's something I was just looking at. And they have something out there on Leaf Buyer called Throwback Strains from the 70s. Some of them aren't available, but it's interesting to uh, kind of see where these might have been used as part of the base hybrid. And in fact, John, you hit on some super interesting research that we were interested in, but we kind of ran into a dead end and realized we have to kind of come in reverse in that 
we would love to actually yeah understand the origins of some of these strains like what were those flavor profiles so like one of the earliest strains was uh, a strain juicy fruit apparently it maybe had sort of that bubble gum smell and right so now there's still sort of bubble gum strains out there and so what i'm saying is what if we're able to almost work backwards it, you know it's going to be a, a tricky puzzle to untwine and it may be impossible but it, but that's i think what you're kind of after is you know what are the flavor profiles we're seeing today you know you know what you know what what's that smell you're smelling in the air and you know you may be able to find out you know maybe someone says oh you know i'm smoking on like a gelato um, and so that's a pretty common strain these days. And that's, in my opinion, what I would call like sort of a, you know, one of the heavier indicas. It's going to have a real high THC percentage. It may have a certain terpene profile. Well, Canada, it's when things seem to happen in the 70s and then into the 80s, everything seemed to go to Canada. And then Canada became kind of the mecca of the world of strain development, right? If you follow high times, it was just something to read about, you know, because it was illegal here and it seemed like Canada had more freedom to basically start cultivation and then hybridization and, and creating strains. And then it kind of backfed back to the United States as those strains came back online and they could be measured. I mean, just arbitrarily looking at it being measured and then that selection of that strain is actually producible and then basically set up for regulation and then at the legal market. I think you're spot on, John. And I actually sort of had a sneaking suspicion about this just from some of the things I've observed. And it may still be sort of that still may be the, the case to a certain extent today. But, but now that the markets are so open in, like, say, America, I think people are doing genetic breeding here. But I think that's 100% right because the the genetic breeding, right, it's a, a tricky process and there's a lot of trial and error. So you may not necessarily want to fill out like, you know, a thousand plant room or more with experimental stuff. So I think you're right. So I think there is like a subset of like basically breeders who are just solely working on genetics. They're just you know, doing the selective breeding, the trial and error, crossing different strains. I think there are people doing that. And then I think, yeah, they stumble upon something they think's a winner, a good flavor profile. They get a bunch of seeds and then, yeah, those may wind up at a cultivation and then they just clone it. So, yeah, they find a good variety. Maybe this variety grows at the right height, flowers at the right time. Maybe it's um, pest and disease resistant. You know, there's all these various factors that people look for. And then, yeah, they just yeah, fill out the cultivation with that. And then I think that's what's being sold commercially. So once again, I don't, I need to do more research to confirm this, but I, that's what I suspect is happening. And just to finish here, basically Thailand was even saying that they were, once again, I don't know how true this is because I've heard conflicting things that California cannabis isn't actually really flowing all over the world. But then, you know, here in Thailand, they were saying that they're they're actually concerned about illegal cannabis coming in from the United States and undercutting their market. That is kind of interesting. 
Uh, once again, I'll have to dig up the the actual articles to get, actually get the pricing on it. But I, I want to say they were saying the price of a gram of cannabis in Thailand was around nine dollars, and which is actually kind of comparable to Washington State. Um, and then they were saying the illegal cannabis was coming in around four to five dollars a gram. Um, and that's that's kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning where you know cannabis is just kind of freely flowing and it you know it's undercutting legal markets and it's just kind of it's kind of funny that things have kind of done a complete 180 degree turn where i'm sure the dea was originally maybe not super happy with thai sticks coming into the united states from thailand and right. now Thailand's not super happy about California cannabis coming into Thailand. Um, so, so anywho, but if, it, just, if it's all correct, that basically Thai stick came in earlier before DEA was created. So that would have been, there's a lot of this has been interesting. It's been, I don't know. It's been interesting how the regulatory bodies, saw a problem but basically tried to address that problem in the sense of creating agents and then, and then pulling it under an umbrella of say the D what was created DEA right um but in the same sense you're right um, there's if I have a legitimate market in my country I really don't want your stuff invading it because you'll undercut me and then I'll have to but then again if it's if my weeds that much better then sooner or later i mean do you want to keep the indigenous weed improve it or basically allow the, the growers to grow the imported weed right and then does that offer an environmental issue that basically says that the indigenous weed is more adapted to the environment as opposed to the the, the imported weed i think there's two things going on one i think that the people undercutting them they're just not being like traced um there, there's no like the traceability of that um and then i mean there's just so many camps in the cannabis industry i bet you there's some cultivators in thailand that they just like how they've been doing things right they just they've got their seed stock they just do their same thing every year they're happy with it and they like they like their plant genetics right they don't want change right so those are the people who want stable genetics and then there's other cultivators who are saying like, well, people want high, or maybe they do, but people want high THC cannabis. These seeds from California give me some remarkable high THC plants. I'm going to use those. So, so there's some people just doing it, just the simple economics. Yeah, I just want California genetics. So there's, well, there's, I'm oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say there's it's almost just two different issues. Um, I view it as uh, the, the reason they're being undercut is they're just not being traced. And then the, you know, the strain, um, uh, the genetics, that's just a whole different thing uh, where it's like, you know, do people want that's more of a cultivator choice. Um, well, the other thing I was going to say in India, they were having problems with um, genetic uh, modified seeds, right? And what they would do is they they take their seeds from the year, and they save those seeds. 
and then they basically reuse those seats next year and the next year and next year, you know. And the argument they were having big problems apparently um, were that introducing these seats, these seats belong to me, the corporation. You're buying the seats, so therefore you can't keep them. And many people, there were actually supposedly farmers over the fact that they couldn't control the stocks that they were actually growing anymore. So I can kind of, you know, especially in an agricultural society. To us, agriculture is, is a, unless you're directly a farmer, it's owned by a corporation in, in a lot of ways, but other than independent. But then again, marijuana too is just a secondary kind of crop. You kind of hit hit the nail on the head because that's what's happening in Thailand is it's real interesting because they have like sort of the reverse of what's happened in America where this is almost like a individual grower app. So I was thinking like, this is basically Thailand's version of metric, but it's for like small time growers. So it's just like, if you're just a small time farmer and you want to grow cannabis, you would just get this app and you know put some plants in the ground and just make sure you're just recording your activity and i don't know if they have any like big licensed commercial grows yet i i thought this was this was brilliant because i was thinking that you know why what and i think maybe in missouri they kind of have a system like this but you know why can't like home growers essentially use the metric system or a system like that and just say hey you know i'm just going to grow what it whatever's permitted maybe it's four to six plants you know i'll follow all the rules you know i'll put it in the traceability system i'll record how much i harvest and this and that that way you're still doing everything by the book but you know why couldn't a, a home grower do this and in thailand they're showing yeah that they can I just kind of wanted to highlight that because this is something that Thailand's doing really well. And if you look at their app, um, it's it's in Thai or or I don't know what the, uh, their language is. It's in their language. They have their own Food and Drug Administration. And I don't know. I just thought this was a really uplifting, positive sign. Just kind of ties in nicely with with everything here. Real quick, I, I know we've stayed way over time. If you want to see some data science for just five minutes, sure. I'll just show you real quick how we could actually get these licenses. Because, yeah, like you said, these are agricultural places. So let's, you know, keep track of these cultivators. Just real quick, you know, how would you you actually get these licenses programmatically? Well, we talked about web automation and you know here you'll actually have to you know do some some automation and basically what this script does is it literally just opens this website and then it just gets all the data from this table and then it literally just clicks this next button and gets all the table the data from that table and it just keeps clicking this next button until that button is disabled and then it stops right so those are the the exact actions you would take as a human 
if you were going to, you know, read all the data from this table. But, you know, here we can just do that exact same thing, but with a script. Click on the Cannabis Cultivations tab, and that will just start going page by page. So now we just go page by page here and get all of the licenses. So page six, page seven, page eight, and page nine. Okay. And then, you know, if we want, we can now close the browser since we're done with it. So bam, that browser's gone. <clears throat> and now we can look at the data, right? So how many licenses are in South Africa? So there's 88 cultivators in South Africa. We've noted that they have a population of around 60 million people. So you can find out the cultivators per 100,000 people. So they only have 0.14 cultivators or about 0.15 cultivators per 100,000 people. But, and from my understanding, that may be low, but let's, let's double check that. So, you know, how many cultivators per 100,000 people are there in Oklahoma? Probably, probably more than that is my hypothesis. Just to, to go ahead and visualize this data here, you know, we were talking about states and this is basically the, the state equivalent in South Africa. So it looks like they're growing mostly in Guatang. So let's just see if we can't do, find a quick map of South Africa provinces. But oh yeah, so Guatang is this little province right here in the middle. So that's where there's the most, followed by the Western Cape, KwaZulu Natal is the third. My bias was on the United States. And so that's where I was doing all the data collection. And just because of my bias, we completely left off an entire country. And so, you know, that's 88 cultivators that we can start to, to learn more about. You know, what are they doing? Are they growing medicinal cannabis? Are they growing adult use cannabis? So I'll pass that off to you. So, you know, check out the South Africa, check out their regulations, maybe start researching some of these companies, see what what are they producing. And then also, you know, check out Thailand. They've got an interesting market here. And then also, you know, if you're interested, you know, get some some hemp data. Why don't we kind of pick up this avenue of the conversation next week? Because I think Brian was interested in the raw garden results. And so why don't we actually maybe I'm going to see if we can't find any hemp data with terpenes. Maybe I can think of something outside of the box here because I think where this conversation is kind of going is we've talked a lot about the importance of strains and varieties in the past. And now we just sort of introduced another dimension where there's also strains and varieties from other countries. And then, you know, within our country, we've got these two huge different varieties, the CBD heavy strains and the non-THC, or I mean the heavy C THC strains. Maybe start to, to map which ones people are selecting over time. Maybe the chemical profiles people are selecting over time. 
because as I was saying at the beginning, people have their prize strains, right? The Highland, they've got their their prized strains, Colombia, they have their prized strains. I've heard that Mexico has their prized strains, and then they're not happy that all the California strains has basically uh you know gotten mixed with all of their local varieties the medical market they may have used a bunch of these recreational or illegal high thc varieties i think that's maybe what we can try to get on next week and try to tie it all together is basically we've got all these different legalities of cannabis different places where it's permitted then People are selecting different varieties, whether it's in the illegal market or in legal markets or medicinal markets. The cultivators are selecting varieties that people that they can sell to people. And so what if we can't tie it all together? You know, what if there's, you know, some effect of regulation on the chemotypes that people are growing? There is a reason why they're growing it. I mean, there's a reason why they like that that um, that selection, um, because either the local neighborhood likes what they're growing, you know, they like your brand of corn, your ear of corn, the way it looks, and people will buy your local stock, which is why it's better to buy, say, local Texas corn. But there, but if you've ever had Silver Queen corn out of Maryland, it's far superior. But I don't know if it'll actually grow in Texas. But they have something similar. But the idea is that it's a local corn. And you stick it in a nuker, and essentially you can heat this thing up and you don't have to butter anything on it. You just cook the juices inside the kernel. So, but Silver Queen is totally different. It's corn, it's a different species of corn, different terrain. Yes. And I think we definitely should try to tie this all together because I think this is what people are super interested in. I know I've heard talk on the town that basically, you know, right, we start, let's tie it all together, right? At the beginning, people were saying that legal cultivators were having a tough time in California. One thing they're looking at to try to give themselves a marketing advantage is, I forget what they call it, like Terra Noir or something, uh, where it's basically, they're saying, you know, what makes our cannabis special is the soil it was grown in. It's right. special because it was grown here in California. And there's been some interesting genetic research slash microbiology research where I would want to say that they can basically take seeds and look at the microbes in the seeds and tell you where, oh, once again, I don't know how accurate this is going to be. Well, that's but I think there's been complaint uh, <laughs> suggestions that they can look at microbes in the seeds and tell you where in the world the seeds came from um, because you know every microbiology is such a integral part of life um, right and that's what makes the soil in california special well in sensimilia tips there's a whole article on how you make compost the california way gotcha and I'll have to give you the recipe because it is not an easy recipe. Um, so, you know, they've, they're have they saying, oh, you know, get chicken, <laughs> you know, chicken. Well, I, used to, I used to have um, 
a garden every year for like eight years. I practiced something called square inch gardening. What I would do is I had this garden in the backyard. It wasn't very big, but it's nice size. And I just compost it. And then and right before winter, basically just throw all kind of organic stuff in, churn it. And next thing I know, I let it just ferment during the winter time. As soon as the ground started to break, I broke it all up again and let it sit for a little bit. And then essentially added more material. And then ascended, then started putting certain plants in. Tomatoes did well up until a certain point. If I painted the back wall of this small yard white, the plants would have probably grown a lot better into the hot season. But with the temperature, the sun directly coming down and hitting that wall, the temperature variant went up. So therefore, they produce vine, not fruit. So it was a bunch of different ways the plants did that. But the idea is getting the nitrogen. To me, at least when I remember by some of my body, the nitrogen fixing bacteria it gets around the roots and helps actually help the plant work its magic, right? So that's that's something to go into of how the stuff grows and why California has its own um, brand of compost. Because I did see somebody do a little bit of compost where he's actually using his own fecal material. Okay, well, that's not gross to me, but it's, I, I understand what he's trying to get to. But that's something extended when he was doing, let it ferment. And it broke down, and that way he could utilize this for something else. <laughs> you know, manure is a big part of it. Like, so here, like, they're saying, you know, 50 pounds of fish meal, you know, 20 pounds of hoof and horn meal, 20 pounds of blood meal, 5 to 10 pounds of bat guano. It's just funny because this is where sort of these, like, like in cannabis, like the cannabis folklore. So, I mean, even in like North Carolina, I, I knew a couple outlaw growers and they were yet trying to get bat guano for their compost because it's just, you know, cannabis was originally passed down by folklore. Um, and so, you know, someone like Tom Alexander would say, oh, yeah, you know, we're using bat guano in our in our compost. And next thing you know, every single cannabis cultivator thinks they need to put bat guano in their compost. Um, and I was talking to a, a cultivator and what they were saying is, remember, we were finding out the other week that, that my hypothesis was the strains you were smelling in Texas were really high in sulfuric compounds. Well, plants are a chemical factory. They need sulfuric compounds in the compost. So that's what um, the cultivator was saying was he was saying, make sure you're your soil is rich of uh, like sulfur, I guess, because that'll get turned. Yeah, that, that will be converted yeah. by the plants. Well, then that, 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 that's when you have to start studying, not the, because when they do the test, the plants already grown. And the idea is they're testing a certain type, this plant, as opposed to this plant. But the real beauty of all this stuff is in the actual biology of the plant, especially from the fact of what, takes hold in the soil, what you have to do to keep that hold until the plant can spread out wide enough. And then what happens in between the roots, because the head of the root, right? The head of the root is designed primarily just drill and search for water, which is why tree roots grow into pipes. They'll go into small places and expand. It's just designed, there's so many cells on that tip that basically it just penetrates anything, right? But in the same breath, there's these fine hairs that go across there 
They're actually part of the chemical absorption. And it actually, if you have a house like your house plant sitting on your desk, eventually that'll get root bound because the plant's eating the soil. So you'll have to take that and either break it up or replant it into something bigger with more soil. And I used to have plants and I used to drag them up into the bathroom, put them in the shower. And what I would do to get the best growth out of some of this, the house just house plants, you basically flush out the acids and all the poisons because of the chemical. It doesn't drain. And I flush all this stuff out, then make sure it drained properly, and then put this uh, organic um, fertilizer in, right? Dr. Shells or something like that. It was like, we're totally organic, but you mix it in and you just pour it in and let it sit. Let the plants rest. You're cleaning the leaves, letting the stoma be able to breathe. Um, you know, and there's a whole bunch of functions that the plant goes through respiration in order to make that uptake happen. I love it. And I think we should pick this conversation up next week. Um, so I, I've actually got to uh, run myself, but okay, I've got a bunch of cool material to share with you. So why don't we, we pick this back up next week? Because I think we've hit on an interesting vein where we can start tying in things like we can tie regulation to location. And what if we can't tie that to chemotype? Because we've got all these disparate sources of cannabis data. And if we can start connecting them, then we may be able to draw some really, really cool insights. Makes sense to me. So, so my voice back better and better. <laughs> yeah. So I've got too much cool stuff to share with you today. So it will have to, sh to wait until next week. However, Thank you. You know, thank okay. you for coming to Advanced Cannabis Science. Until next week, you know, keep your nose to the grindstone, stay productive, and you know, have fun while you're doing it. You gotta go make money. Yeah.